we have a couple of announcements. First of all, it is drawing near the end of the opportunity to sign up for a Chafer Seminary course, and you get registration is free. I mean, excuse me, tuition is free, but registration cost, uh, you pay the registration fee and, of course, pay for your books. And there's uh, several, a couple of good courses uh, that are being offered this summer. Also, Vacation Bible School, something to pray about and look forward to July 19th to 21st, three days. And the focus is kind of on the younger kids because we have many of them. And it's great to see some of the older kids, we're talking about the ones that are 11 or 12 or so, are volunteering to help teach. So that's just just a really tremendous. I think I got, I remember having it, uh, helping out when I was probably about 13 or 14 in vacation Bible school, great place to start. And also, uh, we're still looking for at least another volunteer uh, to serve on the missions committee and contact either Skip Westfall, that's Alan's son, and uh, or Jim Myers, and uh, see about that. What's that for announcements? Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be shaken. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word this evening, let's bow our heads, and after a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity to be spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, making sure we're in fellowship, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to, that as we recite these promises, we know that you are an ever-present help in time of need. And as we look at the world around us, we see things going on and we see the trends of, of this period of history that have been uh, headed in a negative direction, negative trajectory for decades. And it just seems like a snowball. It gets bigger and bigger, worse and worse. But, Father, we know that we are here for a purpose and that we should not uh, have our thoughts shaken by looking at the world around us, but we should have stability because we know that uh, nothing that's happening was outside of your omniscience. Nothing that's going on was uh, unforeseen by you, that your word prepares us for every and any situation. And, frankly, for most of us, the circumstances and situations that we face are not anything like so many uh, Christians in places around the world, uh, such as uh, India, any Islamic country, many places in Africa, where uh, every day can be their last, that the overt persecution of Christians is, um, is beyond our imagination. And yet every morning these people are faithful, they get up, pastors are faithful, they teach the word, and the next day they may be thrown in jail, they may be horribly tortured, they may be beaten, and yet they continue. That is the mentality of the believer that is 
understands the reality of our relationship with you. Father, we pray for us that we might have that kind of moral and spiritual courage if things come to that. But above all, that we might shine as lights in the midst of this broken world, this wicked and perverse generation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we're studying this evening in uh, Judges and how it relates to us living in this increasingly pagan world that hates you and is bitter and has great animosity toward you, and that we may relax and be a great witness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Judges, and tonight I was double-minded. I could not decide on the title. So we have option one, consequences of being double-minded, and option two, God's irrepressible grace. And that's really the sub-theme all through Judges. As we look at this again and again, and in each cycle they get worse and worse, and God continues to reach them and uh, give them grace. When we look at this, what we're going to see tonight is that there's there's hints in the text foreshadowing related to the fact that that uh, that Gideon is may have a temporary victory, but he's going to lead the Israelites right back into idolatry and the worship of Baal, and things will be worse afterward than they were before. And we ask the question, well, then why did God deliver them? Same reason God delivers you five times today and forgave you five times today for committing the same sin over and over and over again, which you've probably committed 18,973 times, and you'll commit it about 25 times more tomorrow, as I will, that God's grace is always there for us, and it is not, there's no asterisk there to say, well, you're going to reach a point where the grace well is empty. And that's the way it was with Israel. Again and again and again, God in his grace uh, provided for them. And it's not because they turned back to him, because as I pointed out, when these passages say that Israelites cried out to him, that word doesn't mean that they repented or they turned to him. It meant just that they got tired of the pain of as it were, being spanked so many times, they just yelped. And so God relented and gave them a deliverer, grace, grace, and more grace. And that's the same thing in our lives. And that is just a tremendous, tremendous illustration of the grace of God. So as we have gone through the structure of Judges 6, we came down to about verse 16, where we see just a, a crystallization of the commissioning of Gideon in, in Judges 6.16. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. A very clear statement of God's plan and God's will for Gideon. And Gideon responds by telling the angel of the Lord to stay put, as it were, just wait, and that he would go and provide a sacrifice. And then when he comes back, having uh, brought the broth and the sacrificial goat and everything, then 
then the Lord says to him when, when Gideon recognizes that this is the angel of the Lord and he fears for his life, then in Judges 6.23, the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not, be, do not fear. You shall not die. So it's, again, a reiteration. Not only shall you not die because you've been in the presence of the Lord, but there's a promise there that in what is coming, you shall not die. So there's this great confirmation of God's commissioning of Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. So what we've seen here is this increasing problem of paganism in Israel. And because of that, we see, and we've looked at this the last couple of weeks, that it has embedded itself in Gideon's own family. The same way a lot of unbelief and a lot of pagan ideas have embedded themselves in your family, in my extended family, and we have to live with those realities. And sometimes that that makes life pretty difficult. And what we're seeing in throughout this book of Judges is how uh, Israel became more and more pagan until we reach the end of Judges. And we're going to see that they're, they're actually worse in many ways than the Canaanites that they were supposed to have annihilated. And this is because of their rejection of, of God and because they have adopted the worship of Baal and the Asherah the fertility religions, and you cannot imagine, I can't either, what it was like to go to the the Baal temples and the Asherah. I mean, it was just just horrific. And and yet uh, God did not completely destroy Israel completely. uh, His grace was, was always there offered to them. But what the Israelites did was they they merged what little they knew about the Bible, what God had done with the worship of Baal. It's called syncretism, when you just sort of pick and choose among your various options, and you basically make up your own religion. And if you want to see examples of that, just talk to your next-door neighbors probably, people you work with, because most Americans have this. They, they don't necessarily have a pure uh, postmodern worldview. They don't have a, a pure secular humanistic worldview. It's just a syncretism. It's just a hodgepodge uh, of these of these different different elements. And so that's what what Gideon has. He knows some things about Yahweh. He understands the angel of the Lord. He understands the significance of his of his commissioning. Uh, but he is uh, he still has at the core of his thinking this syncretistic worldview. And God is not going to let him get away with that. And at some point, God's not going to let you or me get away with that because at some point we have to grow spiritually beyond that. And since he has chosen Gideon to be the deliverer, he's got to make sure that that a very clear statement is made that Gideon is, has completely broken with any element, any traces of the Baalism, of the, uh, of the um, syncretistic views that he had held 
And so what he's told to do is to go and to uh, destroy the altar of Baal and to cut down the wooden image, the Asherah image. That was, and this isn't just a pole. I mean, what's it's all carved, and what's depicted on it are all kinds of horrific uh, orgy scenes and other things of that nature. And so that's what is on, on that image. And we're told in verse 28... Twenty-five. Go back to twenty-five. God gives the order. He says, "Take your father's young bull, the second bull." And I went through the Greek, the Hebrew. There's is awkward, but it has to do with the, your your prize bull, your best bull. Um, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. He has to tear down and cut down, and then in its place he has to build an altar to the Lord your God. So it's not just a matter of tearing down one thing. It is a matter of replacing it and building an altar to the Lord. It is a profound statement, a polemical statement. It is an, it is an argument, to visual argument to demonstrate that there is no other God other than Yahweh. And so... We get in a realization in our lives that as believers, we've got to reach these kinds of benchmarks as we grow, that we have to decide, are we going to be intimidated by the world system? Are we going to allow ourselves to be put in a position where we have to, whether it is overtly or covertly, and by that I mean just by going along to getting getting along, we have to decide, each person has to make their own decision, are we tacitly validating the worldview of the, uh, of the pagan government that, that dominates today? And I have an example, I talked about this briefly on Thursday night, this is a news article, I've seen a couple of others related to this. And this is from the uh, Star News Network, and there's so many of these now. But it is related to a um, decision by the uh, Department of Agriculture that has announced that all state and local agencies that receive federal funding for meals, and that would include all schools, uh, must not discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Now that, just as much as what I've read, that that sounds like that's not too bad. Nobody wants somebody who's going to be um, filled with a lot of uh, prejudice and making a lot of snide remarks, being rude about somebody who's gender confused or the sexual identity or whatever the circumstances, that just doesn't have any place. And believers, of course, should be grace-oriented. We all have sin natures. We all have uh, times when we just give give a complete vent to our sin nature in whatever arena it might be. And so we shouldn't be walking around uh, judging or acting nasty towards somebody else's sin nature. And so that's fine as far as it goes, but that's not all that this means. What does it mean that not to discriminate on sexual orientation and uh, gender 
uh, identity. So this is from their uh, website, from the USDA website. Uh, USDA is committed to administering all its programs with equity and fairness and serving those in need with the highest dignity. Doesn't that sound good? A key step in advancing these principles is rooting out, like that, rooting out discrimination in any form, including discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. At the same time, we must recognize the vulnerability of the LGBTQI plus communities and provide them with an avenue to grieve any discrimination they face. Whether I'm going to add this, whether it really happened or not. Um, we hope that by standing firm against these inequities, we will help bring about much-needed change. So basically what this means at the very least is that if there's a public school that does not allow biological males to go to the biological female restroom and to uh, use the biological female's dressing room, then they're going to get their federal funds yanked. Any, any institution, whatever it is, that is uh, getting federal funding, if they don't allow for people who are gender confused to go to the restroom or dressing room or locker room of the uh, biologically opposite sex, then they're going to lose their federal funding. What that means is that the federal government is intimidating and pressuring and they are um, uh, forcing the, uh, these institutions to validate their view of gender fluidity. And as we've seen, you, you have two views. You basically have the view that, that these are rock-solid distinctions that God built into males and females from the very beginning of creation. And so we don't compromise with that because of where that goes. Now, there may be teachers, there may be others who say, well, you know, this really doesn't affect me directly. Well, that may be today, but where's it, where's this going to go? So each individual Christian has to sit down and really think these things through. Where, where are they going to draw the line? Because at some point, passivity is validation. And when you are passive to these things going on around you, then it is giving the, you are giving your tacit approval to them, and that has to be addressed uh, in your soul, you have to think about this. That this isn't an area, uh, a gray area, or an area of of um, where there's no, no specific revelation of scripture. This isn't an area like the doubtful things in Corinth. This isn't an area of whether or not to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, or whether or not to um, uh, whether or not you can smoke or chew or drink any number of things. Uh, those are social mores, and that this is not what we're talking about here. And so, this is basically uh, what is what is going on. And the the federal government is seeking to completely embed 
gender ideology within the law of the land. And so that's, that's where the pressure is coming uh, for, for a lot of believers. So that's where the pressure was, obviously, in Ophrah, where Gideon was. And it's right in his family. And so we covered this last time. I'm just picking up a couple of things that are new. This is a breakdown of these verses from 25 to 30 that was in um, uh, Daniel Block's commentary on Judges. And he makes the point that looking at verses 25 and 26, you have the command to tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah. And you have the repetition of the word karat for cut down here. Then in verse 28, uh, there's the description of what Gideon did. He pulled down, which is the uh, synonym for tear down up here. The Asherah was cut down, which is what God told them to do, cut down the Asherah. And to offer a bull as a whole burnt offering to God. And then when they are accused, when the townspeople come out and they accuse Gideon of, of um, what he has done, they use almost the identical language and verbiage that God used in commanding Gideon to do what, what he's going to do. Now, the text doesn't come right out and say this, but basically this is what the world does, is the world is saying, Isaiah talks about those who will call good evil and evil good. And they they just completely flip things so that that which is evil is good and that which is good is evil. And so they are now saying that uh, Gideon must come under capital punishment because he has torn down the idol to Baal. But yet Exodus 20 Verse 2, God says that you shall have no other gods before me, and idolatry under the Mosaic law was punishable by death. So they've completely flipped the law, and so tearing down the altar of Baal is now uh, punishable by the the death penalty. So that's what uh, what they're calling for is because he has torn them down, he should be killed. And at this point, we get a surprise because Gideon's father intervenes. Now, this is really interesting. There's some things going on in what Joash does that if you don't stop and think about it, you'll you'll think that what's on the surface is better than what's actually going on here. This is what I love about Judges is there's so many of these different little kind of word plays, for lack of a better term, and these subtleties that are taking, that are taking place here. And so Joash comes out and he phrases it where he says, uh, would you plead or contend? I think that's what some translations use. Would you plead or contend for Baal? Uh, you know, and he's, he, it's like uh, it seems like he has uh, been swayed by what's happened. Like, like uh, after the uh, priests of Baal and Asherah at the time of Elisha, uh, after God uh, uh, 
incinerated Elijah's sacrifice. I think I said Elijah, Elijah's sacrifice. And so he comes out, would you plead for Baal? Uh, would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Now, this word for plead is really an interesting word, and it has the idea, uh, basic idea of striving or contending for something. But in legal context, it can either relate to the charges that are being brought by the prosecution or it can relate to the, def- the argument from the defense. It is a technical legal, uh, legal term, and so what, what Joe Ash is saying is, are you going to stand up and give a defense of Baal? And then he says, would you save him? Now, that's another interesting word because that's a word based on the uh, Hebrew word yasha, which means to save redemptively or to deliver from a tight spot. And this is a word that's, a uh, form of this word is used to describe all of the judges. They're the deliverers of Israel. So it's a military deliverance, not a sp- spiritual uh, deliverance. And so he said, would you, would you, uh, would you save him? So he's, he's using this same word, or the narrator, uh, the writer of Judges is using this same word, where he, he's using this word that applies to the deliverers of Israel to apply it to these who are defending uh, Baal. And uh, so instead of the people needing deliverance from, a, uh, from this idol and from this hostile god, uh, now, what, what Joash is saying is this God needs to be delivered from the people. So let him uh, plead, plead for yourself, be, uh, plead for himself because the altar has been, has been torn down. And then he goes on to say, instead of executing Gideon, his son, he says, let the one who would plead for Baal, the one who's going to try to defend Baal, let him be put to death by morning because you, you've overstepped your bounds. And so it, it seems like Joash may have been convinced that his pagan ways were uh, out of bounds, but we're going to have to wait and see the writer is using an interesting literary technique here to sort of bring us in and think, oh, this is this. He's shifting. Gideon's going to shift. And what comes out is what happens when he renames Gideon. And this has always been one of those things that, that, that I had a little trouble understanding. So in verse 32, we read, therefore, on that day, he called him Jeroboam, that is, Joash. He renames his son Jeroboam, which is a form of that name, as what is used instead of Gideon through uh, a lot of the other references to Gideon. So the idea is that at first it seems like this is a compliment, 
that Gideon has contended with Baal and won. But this is a problem for several reasons. First of all, to take it that way, and um, and at that point, it, that's where it's translated in King James to verse 32, let Baal plead against him. Uh, let him, that's a third person imperative that's called the jussive in the, in the Hebrew. And the problem is, uh, Reeve never occurs with the jussive and never um, has that, that nuance to it. So let Baal plead against him. He goes on, or excuse me, I'm on the name. Normally a name that is used like this with the suffix of the name of the God is going to be a name that is stating the, uh, a victory, proclaiming a victory for the, for the false God or for God or false. So we have many different times you have, names of Jews that have a yah for a suffix or even a prefix, and it's a positive statement about who God is. So the, a name like this, you expect it to be something uh, that is a positive statement, but here it is, it, it's not stated positively. It, it's got this, this uh, uh, jessive nuance to it. And what this is doing is introducing a subtle irony within the passage. And the passage is, and this, this relates to, um, would, would, this would be translated, let Baal contend against Gideon. But that, does, that doesn't seem to fit. But does it, does it not fit? What's going to happen? What's going to happen is that Gideon is going to win the battle but lose the peace because after he wins the battle, what happens? What happens is that he is going to um, set up an idol. And furthermore, a positive connotation here seems to be... uh, seems to be refuted by later passages. Let me look at this slide first. Jeroboam, it has to do with Baal is contending, but it's changed in 2 Samuel 11.21 to Jerobasheth. Now, why you take this suffix Baal, which is referring to this pagan deity, and you change it to Besheth. Besheth is from the uh, Hebrew verb bosh, which means shame, to be embarrassed, to be ashamed. And so it's emphasizing the fact that there is a shame that's going on here related to Jeroboam, related to Gideon. There's, there's shame there. In First Chronicles 8, 33 to 39, we have another person. This is one of Saul's... <coughs> Sons Ishbaal, uh, he's, which means a man of Baal, and it's changed in Second Samuel two eight to Ishbosheth, a man of shame. And then you have in First Chronicles eight thirty four you have Merabaal, who is related to uh, uh, Saul, uh, Gideon. Actually, it's uh, uh, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. 
And so the, the Baal is changed to Bosheth, which indicates shame. So Jerobosheth means let, let shame contend. And it, what it's doing is shame is, has contended, and it's indicating there's a, there's a loss of what happens. In Judges 8.27, Gideon uh, has an ephod built and sets it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. So he formalizes a, and reintroduces idolatry into Israel. So who wins? See, it looks like Gideon won because he tore down the altar. But when he is named by his father, it's a name that, that has a certain ambiguity there to indicate, well, let Baal contend and maybe he'll win. And then it looks like he won. In Judges 8.33, so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Well, the word bereath means covenant. So Baal bereath means Lord of the covenant. And so it, it appears that they have entered into some sort of covenant with Baal. And this is what's going to be demonstrated, and you're going to have all this horrible stuff go on with um, his son Abimelech and with uh, things that are going on in, in Shechem. And if you go to Shechem today and you go to the archaeological dig, they have found and erected this pole that it, it was related to the worship of Baal Barith. And so that shows, and I'll have some pictures of that when we, uh, when we get there, uh, that this is a historical reality. And what happens is there's this foreshadowing taking place here that, that this nickname, this new name given to Gideon, isn't indicating he's a great, uh, he's this great warrior, but it's indicating that he's still indecisive and he's going to finally end up on the wrong side and lead the people right back into idolatry. Which raises the question is, in light of what Gideon's going to do, what do we learn about God? We learn that God's grace continues to reach out to the Israelites. And even though Gideon is going to fail and lead them right back into idolatry and the worship of Baal. Nevertheless, God in his grace is going to provide a deliverer and a temporary deliverance from Israel, for Israel before they go uh, right back into it. And this is, again, um, a, a very important theme all throughout Judges, that this is about God's continued, continued grace. And it emphasizes God's unmerited, infinite love for us that no matter how much we fail, no matter how many times we commit the same sins, God's going to forgive us. He's going to deliver us again and again. And his, his um, grace is always sufficient. And that reminded me of that hymn we sing, He Giveth More Grace. The third standard stanza says, Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Can we exceed the provision of God's grace? Not at all. 
Our God ever yearns his resources to share, and he's constantly sharing his resources and forgiveness and deliverance with Israel. And so the next line in the verse exhorts us to lean hard on the arms everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. But it's the next verse that always gets me. His love has no limits. We can't escape the love of God. His grace has no measure. So we can't, we're not going to reach the end of it. It's infinite, which means that we can't be so bad that we're going to somehow get away from his love. Now, that doesn't mean he won't discipline us, but that he's never going to just say, okay, I've had enough. I'm kicking you out of the family. His power, no boundary known unto men. I just love those two lines. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So now what happens? Now there's a little bit of a scene shift that takes place. Verse 33. There's a time shift. And now it's, it's a harvest time. And so the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, whoever they are, gathered together. They crossed over and they camped in the Valley of Jezreel. As you all know, that area, the Jezreel Valley, is considered the breadbasket of Israel. That is where they have the richest farmland, and that is where they produce uh, the vast majority of the agricultural crops for the sustenance of, of Israel and uh, many areas beyond there. Uh, and so they, they camp there, and they are going to be reaching out as far south as Gath. This is their home base. And as far north as up in Galilee and to the northern reaches of Galilee over towards uh, uh, Phoenicia, and they're going to be uh, stealing all of the all of the grain. But notice thirty verse thirty four, they're going to run into a problem now, and that is we're told that the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. It's an interesting word that is used here to, that is translated came upon. It has the idea that the spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon, or, or clothed Gideon, rather. Not clothed himself, but clothed Gideon. He envelops Gideon. Now, we haven't seen the Spirit of the Lord come on one of these deliverers since Othniel at the beginning. Ehud did not have the Spirit of the Lord come upon him. Uh, Deborah had the Spirit of the Lord in the, only in the sense that she was a prophetess, but there's no mention of an empowerment by the Spirit of the Lord uh, for her to destroy a Yabin, the king of, uh, of uh, Hazor, and his uh, general Sisera. And this is the first time, we, or the only the second time we've seen the Spirit of the Lord mentioned, so we have to stop a minute and talk about this. The Spirit of the Lord envelops Gideon. Now, a lot of people because they import into the Old Testament the ideas of the indwelling and the filling by the Spirit, get wrong ideas here. 
when the when the Holy Spirit envelops Gideon or Othniel, or in the future it's going to be Jephthah, and after Jephthah it's going to be Samson. Now, these judges get increasingly worse. And there are those who said, well, it just seems like the Spirit of the Lord here just makes things worse. And that's a misunderstanding. It, it's importing into the Old Testament the sanctification or spiritual life uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit to the church-age believer. The Spirit of the Lord functions toward the le- only the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. You have the Spirit of the Lord coming upon prophets for the writing of the Word and for the verbal articulation of the Word and for their prophecies. You have the Spirit of the Lord coming upon a few leaders like Moses and Saul, and then he's taken away from Saul and David. But it's not for their spiritual life. It's for their ability to lead the nation and to accomplish the task that God has given them in relation to being a spiritual leader. There were probably fewer than uh, 75 or 80 people in the Old Testament that had any relationship whatsoever with God the Holy Spirit. And it has nothing to do with their spirituality, their spiritual maturity, their spiritual growth. It had only to do with giving them the ability to accomplish uh, their, their leadership purpose. So we have um, verse 33 is a shift in uh, what's happening, a shift in scene to the Midianites and Amalekites coming in and camping out and beginning to ravage the land. And then at that time, uh, it's the Spirit of the Lord that comes upon Gideon, and he blows the trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered around him. That's his clan uh, within the uh, tribe of Benjamin. And then he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who were also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Now, you ought to be asking another question. If this Gideon is not quite such a valiant warrior, if he's constantly trying to get out of what the Lord wants him to do, if he is going to end up being such a failure and there's nothing really notable about him and he's he he claims he's from the smallest family in the smallest tribe which isn't true because we pointed out that his father was fairly wealthy and and uh, part of the aristocracy of the t- uh, town which which they, they lived why is it that these people respond to his call so readily Why do they show up? I mean, Gideon's a nobody. All of a sudden, he blows his trumpet, and everybody comes. What makes the difference? Well, it has to be, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Because the Spirit of the Lord's function is to give him the military victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites in fulfillment of God's promise. We just have to stick with what the context is talking about. Don't read all this spiritual life stuff into this. Um, because it, it just isn't there. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and as a result, he blows a trumpet, and the Spirit of the Lord moves upon the people, and they come and in response to that. That's what the significance of the mention of God the Holy, Holy Spirit is. So when we get to this point, we see that the troops are gathering. 
And as all of these troops gather, what is Gideon's mental attitude? Wait a minute. I don't, I'm not really sure I ought to do this. He has a lack of confidence. He has, again, a bad bout of uncertainty. Now, what I want to remind you of before we get any further is that what this last section really emphasizes is the grace of God towards undeserving Israel. They've done nothing to deserve it. They haven't confessed their sin. They haven't turned back to God. They just whined and cried out to God for uh, to stop the discipline. And God in his grace is raising up Gideon. And Gideon's not that much. He's going to be a major failure, but so is Samson and so is Jephthah. And in Hebrews 11.32, the writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say, for the time would fail me. Now, the context here is talking about all these great heroes who trusted God at critical times in their in their lives and in the life of Israel. He says, For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, and he was kind of a wimp uh, because he wanted Deborah to go with him everywhere. Uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. But here we have uh, four men from the period of the judges who are not shining examples of spiritual maturity or spiritual strength. But at one key time in their life, they trusted God, and God gave them an incredible victory and the ability to deliver Israel from from the oppressor. Now, what that tells me is that that God is really gracious in who he is going to reward and who he is going to um, uh, uh, recommend. And here he is recommending them as examples of faith in Hebrews 11. And they did a lot of bad things. We're going to see that Jephthah sacrifices his daughter as a burnt offering. Samson is, is the worst of the judges. He's a womanizer, and he has no respect for his parents and violates his uh, uh, Nazarene vow every chance he gets. So God's grace reaches out and provides for them, and that's one of the most important lessons we can learn. So what happens when we get to verse 36 is Gideon has second thoughts. And he addresses God, and he says, if, we, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I will put out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He's te- he Later on right here, he says he, he, he tested God. But God doesn't strike him dead or incinerate him on the spot. God, in his grace, goes along with this. Gideon isn't trying to uh, find out God's will here. This is one of the often misunderstood applications of this, that Gideon is just wanting to know what God's will is. He, He wants to confirm God's will. But he's very clear about what God's will is. God has stated it several times. Gideon is trying to avoid God's will because he he has just a little bit of faith, but he will exercise that eventually. God will bring him to that point. 
But notice what the first thing he says. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. See, that, that last phrase tells us that Gideon knows for sure, for, with a certainty that God is going to deliver Israel through him. He's not trying to find out what God wants him to do. He knows exactly what God has told him to do. And so he's going to come up with this thing that he thinks is impossible. He's going to put the fleece down on the ground. And he says that if he wakes up in the morning, we all know what this is like living in an in a area with a lot of humidity, that when there's a dew in the morning, it just covers and saturates everything. Just go out, just go out in the fields sometime in the fall and, um, and, and walk through walk through the open fields out in the country. And I remember last year when I was going hunting, just walking out to where I was going to hunt, I had to walk about 100 yards. And by the time I got there, my pants were soaked from about mid-thigh all the way down, and water was squishing out of my shoes just from the heavy dew. So this is uh, what he asked for is that the, the uh, dew on the fleece would just, uh, would just be on the fleece and everything else would be absolutely bone dry. He said, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Shows a lack of faith or questioning whether God can do it. But it reveals that he really doesn't want to do it as well. It was so when he arose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece together. See, God provided an abundance. He wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water, yet everything else was dry. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground around it, let there be dew. And so this, he thought, would be more impossible, but it wasn't. And the next morning, it was dry on the fleece but there was dew on all the ground. So the, the narrative stops there. There's a break in verse 1 of the next chapter. says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early in camp. So this is an interesting little vignette, and it's really there to tell us that he's trying to avoid God's will. So at this point, I want to start talking about how do we know the will of God? A lot of people ask that question. And a lot of people get the wrong answer. I remember before I went to seminary, in the year or two before I went to seminary, hearing three different pastoral candidates and recent graduates all give a different message on how to know the will of God. The passages you go to in most cases, if you don't know better, is uh, jo Jonah and Gideon. And I came away thinking, uh, there's something about that that just didn't write. I hadn't studied all this in Judges yet, so I, I, I couldn't be specific, but I knew it wasn't right. So you've heard it said, number one, that God has a perfect will for every decision in our lives. You've also heard it said that we should live in the center of God's will. Now, within just the last three months, in relation to uh, telling the story about coming out of Ukraine, you know, I heard somebody, I don't think it was anybody at West Houston Bible Church, but I heard somebody say, and I hadn't heard this phrase in years, well, you just you were just living in the center of God's will. 
and it wasn't something that I had the opportunity to correct. Where do you get this from Scripture, living in the center of God's will? What if you're off-center? Are you out of fellowship? What if you're just an inch off-center? What, what, what if you're just right on the edge? Wouldn't you still be in the will of God? You've heard it said that God reveals to us precisely what this will is. Well, on this assumption, every single decision in our lives must have a perfect, perfect will. God has a perfect will for every decision in your life. When you got up this morning, did you look at your feet and your shoes and say, God, what is your will this morning? Should I put my left shoe on first or my right shoe on first? Now, if God has a perfect decision for, I mean, a perfect will for every decision, then you have to do that because it's every decision. And you say, no, 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 it's not every decision. There are exceptions. Okay, well, how many exceptions are there? Maybe God has a, a perfect will for some things, but the others are variable. We'll have to think about that. You've heard it said that uh, one of the keys to discerning God's will is an inner state of peace or tranquility when that decision is made. There's some truth to that, but if you push it very much, you're just a mystic. You're always navel-gazing to find out if you've got that peace. And let me tell you, there are a lot of people who have peace about a lot of sin in their life. So that's not a very good uh, barometer. So you've heard it said that, but I say to you that, number one, this is not biblical. You can't find anything related to the Bible talking about the. And second, it's a form of mysticism. And mysticism is, I like the word just because it rolls off my tongue well, it's epistemological antinomianism. Epistemology relates to how you know what you know. And antinomianism is a rejection of all authority and all absolutes. So basically, it's knowledge without any bounds. I can just make it up as I go along. And that fits real well with everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we're going to look at the doctrine of the will of God and what the Bible teaches about knowing God's will for your, for your life. And we've got about five minutes left. And if I, get ver if I get into five slides, I'll have to redo those five slides next time. So I think we're just going to wait and get into this next time. But the key issue is understanding that, that in, in Gideon, we have somebody who's trying to avoid the will of God. How does he know the will of God? Because God revealed it to him. It was specific. And that's what we find throughout the scriptures is that the scripture gives specific statements about this is the will of God for your life. And people ought to be more concerned about doing those things than trying to figure out if, well, going to this school or that school is the will of God or working for this company or that company is the will of God for my life because they're, they're all caught up with worrying about those things and they're not focused on the things that where God is real clear that that this is this is his will so we have that then we have Jonah 
Jonah knew what God's will was. Jonah, just like Gideon, except more so, he did not want to do God's will. God revealed to him that he wanted him to go to Nineveh and there to warn the Ninevites that if they continued in their, in their paganism and their rejection of God, that God was going to destroy them in 40 days. And, and uh, Jonah knew that these were the number one, this was the number one enemy of Israel, and he said, I'm not going to give them any kind of chance. I'm leaving. And so people come along and say, make this universal statement. Well, see, God had a geographical will for, for Jonah. That geographical will was for him to go to Nineveh. Well, where was Jonah three days before? Was he in God's geographical will or not? Well, God didn't have a geographical will for him three days before. God didn't have, necessarily have a geographical will for him at any other time in his life. But at one time in his life, God had a specific place that he wanted Jonah to go. And could Jonah miss it? See, a lot of people think, oh, God's got a perfect will for you. And and people get consumed with this that, oh, I can miss it. But see, could Jonah miss it? Not only could Jonah not miss it, Jonah couldn't avoid it. In other words, if God has a geographical will for your life, you can decide that I'm going to go do X and go over there, and God isn't going to let that happen. It's like when I was in Kiev, and I knew that I should be there, and then as things got kind of iffy because different airlines were shutting down and were not going to fly out, and uh, KLM canceled all of their flights, and then the next day Lufthansa and their associate airlines canceled their flights, and I got on the phone or texting with um, board members and saying, well, and their, their advice is maybe you ought to leave because if they cancel all the flights, then you're stuck there, which is wise advice. And so I made reservations to leave the next Friday and to fly out on Turkish Air. And when I tested for COVID on Thursday, I had COVID. God was saying, I have a geographical will for your life right now. And it's in Ukraine. Of course, you know, 10 days later, geographical will was not to be in Ukraine. But for that moment, and I knew that, God wanted me in Ukraine. And I had no idea why God wanted me in Ukraine. But I knew that he wanted me there. And so I needed to just relax and uh, be thankful for that. So that's what we're going to focus on uh, next week and probably go over uh, another time, just looking at how do we know God's will for our life. Well, principle number one, you can work on this for the next week. Read your Bible. That will tell you God's will for your life, specifically. All those things like pray without ceasing, give thanks for all things, uh, in all things rejoice or for all things rejoice. That's God's will for your life. And so you can start working on those things, but you have to read the Bible to get that. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to study these things tonight and to uh, see how you work in such intricate and subtle ways and how your word is, is, has these interesting subtleties to it that uh, we need to really d- delve into things because sometimes what appears to be on the surface uh, might just be um, something that needs to be thought through a little better 
that you're foreshadowing and various things that are going on in the text are things that we need to dig out. Father, we're thankful that uh, we have this example of the importance of keeping our uh, mental attitude strict in terms of the Word of God. And Father, we know so many people that if they are not in positions where they are uh, directly being compromised in terms of their uh, in terms of their Christianity, then then they're very close to it. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and insight to be able to see uh, where the world is really trying to shut down Christianity, and the government really seems uh, to be doing that. Policies really seem to be aimed at shutting down anybody who has a view uh, that is biblical. And, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen believers to stick with your word and be a tremendous witness in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.